What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the program. This is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you can follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook for the latest updates. So really excited to be back with you folks this week. It's, you know, really been a weird week of sports, uh, to say the least, over the last, you know, seven, eight days, whatever it's been, but, you know, for better or for worse, you know, bringing you guys the, the content that you deserve, and, you know, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of uh, tough conversations today, so uh, just uh, be, be ready for that, you know, I know that here at this podcast, we always try to, you know, take the optimistic side, but there obviously have been some events recently that have not made people feel uh, super great about Boston sports, but, you know, it's it's how it goes sometimes. So we'll get into it. Uh, would like to say thank you to uh, Matt Blue for coming on Guest Friday last week. It was a nice conversation talking about the uh, early, you know, month plus of the college basketball season. So you can check that out. If you have not, uh, this week we're getting John Veneziano back on Guest Friday doing a uh, World Cup recap or wrap-up, whatever you want to call it. Uh, really a tremendous tournament, unbelievable final on uh, Sunday uh, Sunday morning. We'll talk briefly about that, but obviously want to get uh, more in-depth with that with John later this week. So looking forward to that. That will be out for you folks on Friday. So I think we're going to get right into the sports, get right into the Patriots, which, you know, I feel like might as well rip the Band-Aid off and, you know, do this first. Um, but obviously, you know, a lot's been said about the uh, Patriots, uh, you know, meltdown um, in the final minutes against the uh, Las Vegas Raiders with, you know, just um, there's really not a whole lot of, you know, there, there, there's no there's no short of adjectives that you can use to describe the, the end of uh, that game and just... The way that it unfolded, you know, and I think that clearly, I think this was one of the, if not, you know, the worst Patriots loss a lot of people have witnessed in their entire lives. You know, just a game that you never expected that that was going to happen at the end of the game that, you know, you figured that you watched that last play. You know, I think some people were wondering, okay, why aren't you throwing it toward the end zone? You know, they were around the 40 yard line and it's like, that is pretty hard for someone like Mac Jones to be able to throw the ball. Not that he can't throw the ball 50 or 60 yards. I don't think that that's the point. But I think like you're asking a lot for him to get a clean pocket, really step into the throw and be able to throw it 60 yards because they were around the 40-yard line. You know, it's not like they were cl- they were at midfield or a little over midfield. I think it was closer to the 40-yard line, so... You know, but anyway, I think that watching that last play, you're thinking, okay, they're running a draw play. They're going to take it a little bit conservative. That okay, <clears throat> you give it to Stevenson, have him maybe try to break a couple tackles, see if you can get you know a face mask or some type of defensive penalty, so you can you know get set up for a game-winning field goal, or you just give it to him, you have him run, and then just run out of bounds. Never expected a lateral play to happen. And I think clearly, as we've heard from the players, it was totally improvised. That was not, 
that was not what the coaching staff instructed them to do. And, you know, it just obviously we all saw it happen, you know, in front of our eyes that Jacoby Myers thinks that he sees Mac Jones, you know, open and he was not. And, you know, the rest of the, the rest was history. And, you know, it's just at the end of the day, it's a really, really stupid play by Myers. And I think that even if he saw Mac Jones and thought that he was open, that's probably the last person that you should throw the ball to because Mac is not the most athletic player on the field. And I just think that, okay, worst case scenario, you just tuck it. If you go down, you step out of bounds because the game is tied. There was no reason that they needed to do that. You know, the game was tied. This was not like the Patriots were down you know, four points and had to do some crazy lateral play to try to win the game. The game was tied. And it just is the worst possible time to have just no situational awareness. And that's what happened. You know, Jacoby just made a really, really stupid play and, you know, cost him the game. And it's just, to put it bluntly, it's just a terrible mistake that you don't expect from someone like that, you know, and it's just, it's just disappointing, you know, that that was the deciding play that it was, or just a dumb decision in the moment. And, you know, to, to Jacoby's credit, he has taken full responsibility, you know, has taken the blame. And I said that, you know, he deserves the, the blame and the whatever, um, which I think I'm glad that he did. You know, because could have easily said that the coaching staff told him to do that. You know, but he chose to take it like a man, and I respect him for that. You know, I do. But it doesn't excuse the mistake. You know, and I think that I'm not trying to drag Jacoby at all because he's been a consummate professional the moment that he has been with the team and has always said and always done the right things and has carried himself professionally but made a bad mistake but he owned up to it and I think that that's all you can ask for that's all you can ask for for an athlete who you know makes a mistake and we've all seen we've seen it in every single sport we've seen it in every single situation where a player makes a bad decision and it costs the team the game but I'm just glad that he's able to own up to it um, so you know clearly that last play overshadowed a lot of momentum that the Patriots gathered in that game. You know, I think a lot of us forget they were down 17-3 to at halftime. The Patriots worked their way back into the game. Kyle Duggar with the pick six. You know, tying the game on a... Man, I now even forget how they tied the game. Um, but then, you know, taking the lead in the fourth quarter with the Ramondre Stevenson touchdown run, which seemingly, you know, put the game away for the Patriots that, you know, seemingly it was going to be this great come from behind win that Mac Jones, you know, could finally put a, you know, a come from behind win on his resume, which, you know, apparently is, is, is all that matters with Mac Jones conversation for another day. But, you know, it just would have been a great story. You know, you come in, with a late drive to take the lead, you win the game, you go 2-0 and out west, you come home needing to probably win one game 
to be guaranteed a good chance at the playoffs. You know, and instead the defense just couldn't come up with a big play on that last offensive drive. Um, you know, unfortunately, the Raiders were aided by a, um, you know, horrific missed call that was uh, probably one of the worst things I've ever witnessed as just being a sports fan and looking at how badly that the officials missed that play. And, you know, if you want to use the argument that, okay, the evidence that they had was not enough to overturn it, that's fine. But you could clearly see on a bunch of different replays and on, you know, the live screen that he was clearly out of bounds. And if the argument is the NFL doesn't have all those angles, I just don't really understand that. You know, that shouldn't be a reason. You know, I've heard that, you know, Sunday Night Football, they get more, you know, angles of, of plays like that. Well, why doesn't every single game get that? I guess I'm not understanding that. So, you know, but very, very clearly, you could see on most replays that Keelan Cole's toe is out of bounds. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, it just is kind of a another, you know, really badly missed call and I think misinterpretation of, you know, rules or whatever you want to say. But anyway, it was a play that probably should not have counted. Now, would the Raiders still have been able to score a touchdown on that last drive? You know, probably there's a good chance um, considering how well they were able to move the ball down the field. But that particular play should not have been allowed to stand. And, you know, that's the second game this year that the Patriots, I think, have been on the wrong end of a really, really poorly, poorly officiated play. So, you know, it is what it is. And it's like, you know, it is frustrating that you can't put yourself in the position to have the referee essentially not decide the game, but kind of decide the game. And I think that, you know, it's just, you can't leave it up to officials that are clearly not able to make the correct calls. And I think that that is frustrating because you should be able to play a game with officiating that's fair. But I think that this point you've seen throughout the NFL, and it's not just the Patriots, you've seen throughout the league this year, there have been some horrible missed calls or calls that, you know, were called incorrectly or whatever. You know, you saw on Sunday Night Football, Terry McLaurin was lined up correctly, even motioned to the referee and the referee made a motion that he was, you know, lined up correctly, and then they throw a flag on him. And it's just like, it's it's gotten to a point in this league where it's embarrassing. You know, it's just really not fun to watch football because you know that there's going to be something that's going to happen where an official is going to cost a team a game. And, you know, it's just, yeah, you shouldn't have to rely on the officials, but it's like, you should also have officials that are competent, you know, so it's like, yeah, I guess you can't leave it into the official's hands that you have to go make the play yourself, but, you know, that's just, that's just what it is. So, you know, I don't really think it makes sense to spend more time on this particular game. I mean, clearly the offense struggled again, and it's just, it's, it's, it's at a point where it's kind of like you can't really expect them to be able to be a competent offensive group. 
You know, nothing was more clear than that play in the second quarter where there's that five-play stretch where they're, you know, first and goal, and they have to settle for a field goal. And it's just the fact that the communication is still a problem is just alarming, you know, that it's still a problem in week 15. And it's just, it's basic stuff, you know, and it's, it's just, it's frustrating because the Patriots do have a decent group of offensive players. And I don't think that it's a player problem. You know, I think that clearly there's a lot of communication issues going on with the offense and it's kind of been an issue all season. And it's disappointing that, you know, I think that clearly I was wrong. You know, I think that I thought that they were going to do okay offensively and they were going to be a decent team, but it's just I didn't expect that there were going to be simple mistakes, you know, false starts and, you know, delay of games and having to burn timeouts and things like that. It's just you can't operate like that and expect to be a competitive team, you know. So it's just... It's, it's just a lot of disappointments, I think, along the, a lot, just all, all along the team, you know, that there's, or all along the offense, I should say, because the defense has been one of the, has been one of the best units in the league this year. The secondary, which a lot of people expected to struggle, losing J.C. Jackson, the secondary has been pretty serviceable. You know, Uche and Matt Judon have been unbelievable rushing the passer. The Patriots are, sure, have some of their flaws defending the run, but this is a defense that's been a really good group all year long, and it's just disappointing that it's the offense that's let them down, that if the offense could even be halfway decent, they'd probably be in playoff position right now. So, you know, but at the end of the day, there are three games to go, and the Patriots are not really in a position where they can just tank and lose all three of their games. They can't really do that. They're in a playoff position, or in the playoff mix, I should say. And so, you know, if you think about a Bill Belichick team, they're going to try to be competitive. They're going to try to do their best to win every single game. Now, looking at their final three opponents, I don't really know if they can win all three of those games, even if they attempt to, you know, do their very best, you know, who knows, anything can happen on a given Sunday in this league, we've seen it time and time again, we saw it a lot on Sunday, where there were teams that, you know, were not as good as their opponent, but they were able to beat them or take them to overtime or give them a really good fight. So, you know, I think it's, you know, you got three games to go, and you're going to try to to win them, but, you know, it's just going to be what it's going to be. So, you know, I think there's some comfort in there being just three games left that, you know, it's just been a really disappointing season that I think with just a lot of hope from last year that it just hasn't really carried over. And, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. But I think that, you know, you just got to hope that they can be able to just as professionals move on from this from this loss in Vegas and be able to refocus because you're still in the playoff mix and I don't think I want this team to just punt on the season you know I think that we still would like this team to try to go out and be competitive because you know they're only out of the playoffs by a game and you look at a Miami team playing Green Bay next week 
anything can happen in this league. So it just is like you could still feasibly get into a playoff spot. They're just probably going to have to win at least two of these last three games, which is going to be a tall task playing a Cincinnati team that, in my opinion, is the hottest team in the league right now. And then you're playing a Miami team, which, you know, has been difficult for you over the last few years. And then, you know, you got that road game in Buffalo, which, you know, who knows how that shakes out. Do the Bills rest their starters if they've clinched everything? I would be very surprised if they don't play their starters against the Patriots. You would think that they would like to uh, beat the Patriots one more time this season. So, you know, who knows? But I think just going back to kind of Myers, you know, being willing to accept the blame, you know, I thought that it was important that Mac Jones also stepped up and said, you know, I should have made that tackle on Chandler Jones. Now, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really expect him to make that tackle. You know, Mac Jones is not the most athletic quarterback, and Chandler Jones is a big dude running full speed at him. And, you know, I don't really I don't really know what you expect Mac Jones to do there. I mean, I think that, sure, if he was bigger and more athletic, he probably would have tackled him. But it's like, you know, you try to step in front of a 280-pound guy who's running at you full speed. Like, I just... I don't know what you're supposed to do. You know, at least he tried, you know, at least he didn't, you know, do some silly fake effort and just dive after him, you know, but I'm just at least relieved that he's going to be the bigger person be like, Hey, you know, I should have done that. I should have made the tackle. And I think that it's, it's good that some of these players have come forward a lot this season and have said, you know, I'll take the blame and I'll do that. You know, it's just it's just disappointing that the season has gone this way. And I think, you know, that final play is just kind of a microcosm of what their season has been. So, you know, just as I said, there are three games left. And, you know, you can maybe find some solace in that. That, you know, there are three games to go and chances are they won't be making the playoffs. So, you know, it's if you're one of those people that, you know, find this team hard to watch. You won't have to watch them after, you know, January 8th or whatever the last day of the regular season is. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next three weeks, you know, looking at a Bengals team that is, you know, one of the best teams in the AFC, I think, already, like right now. So it's not going to be really a game that I think It's not going to be a game that I'm really expecting the Patriots are going to be in. You know, I think the only way that they can be in this game is if Matt Judon and Uche and they can rush the passer and get to Joe Burrow. You know, he's had a couple of games this year where he's been sacked five or six times. So I think that that's the way that the Patriots can be competitive is if they can get to Joe Burrow, force him into mistakes, you know, overpower that offensive line, which... The Patriots' defensive line and their front seven have had good games this year, and that's the one way that you can combat a team that has a lot of talent at quarterback, at running back, at wide receiver, that you can, you know, cut down on the timing and, you know, try to make things confusing uh, for Joe Burrow, which it's not really worked for a lot of teams recently, you know, even their last two games. 
that they haven't exactly played their best offensively. They've still found ways to win against good defenses. You know, you look at Cleveland, you look at Tampa Bay, both pretty good defenses. Um, that good defenses recently, I think Cleveland has had moments this year where they've been bad defensively. I mean, look at the Patriots win over them earlier this season, but I thought that Tampa Bay did a good job defensively. Um, so, you know, obviously it's a Bengals offense that is very talented, you know, but the... Um, Raiders were, you know, so is so so were the Raiders, you know, with with Jacobs and Darren Waller and um, Renfro and then you know Derek Carr. So, um, it's just a team with a lot of talent offensively. So the Patriots are going to have to do their best defensively, you know, offensively. I mean, it's hard for me to expect a lot from the Patriots. You know, it's kind of one of those games where you hope that their running game can be at the top of their game. I mean, Ramondre Stevenson taking away all that crazy stuff that happened at the end of the game. He had a really good game on Sunday. He had 172 yards. So, you know, this could be a game that if the Patriots... Um, can get to Joe Burrow, force a turnover or two, you know, slow them down, control the clock on the ground, they might actually have a decent chance to win this game, you know. But I do think that it's just, it's, it's again, you can't turn the ball over on offense, you know. You're not an offense that's built to be able to withstand a lot of mistakes. So you hope that they can control the game with the, control the clock, you know, with the ground game, and Mac Jones can throw some play-action passes, um, but this is also a Cincinnati defense that is really good against the run. You know, they're allowing 100 yards per game, which, you know, is pretty decent. You know, it's a pretty good, um, or excuse me, no, I'm sorry, that's their yards rushing. Yards rushing allowed is 109.6, so that's kind of middle of the pack. So, you know, you hope that Stevenson and... You hope Stevenson can, um, you know, take advantage of that. And the Patriots can kind of ride him and, you know, make some of the correct plays in the passing game. But this is a game I'm not expecting Mac Jones to throw a lot of passes um, because this is a Cincinnati defense that's pretty good against the pass. So, you know, I think as far as this game, it'll be interesting to see who's available uh, for the Patriots. Um, you know, Jack Jones, Jalen Mills. Devontae Parker, Damian Harris all missed Sunday's game. So, you know, maybe the Patriots get a couple of those guys back. You know, it would be great to get someone like Devontae Parker back, get him healthy. But him him being in the concussion protocol, you, you know, you kind of never know. So, you know, Cincinnati here favored by three and a half. You know, I think I do expect the Patriots to put up a bit of a fight, but I just think Joe Burrow and that receiving core is just going to be too much for the Patriots' defense. Um, you know, they've not really played a team that is this dynamic on the offensive side of the ball. So, you know, you'll see what they can do. But, you know, this is a very good Cincinnati team, which is playing really good football this time of year like they were last year. So I have a hard time believing the Patriots will win. But, you know, they can get to the quarterback, force a turnover to 
they can control the ground game and the clock, they might have a chance. So, you know, who knows? You know, anything can happen in this league this season. So that's kind of what I got for this week's game. Before we move on, I thought that um, there was a, I think a tweet that was out a couple of weeks ago that I had noticed and thought that there was an interesting point. I'm going to forget who the person was that tweeted it, but it's kind of been a discussion that I've paid attention to that some people are possibly referring to this Patriots season as a uh, development year or developmental year. Um, and I think what that means is having a season where you are trying different things out. You know, you are playing certain players a lot. You know, I think specifically rookies. You know, you look at the Patriot rookies that have gotten into games this year and have made impacts. I think that you look at 10 draft picks that they had last season or in 2022. Seven of those guys have made impacts. You know, eight of those guys have gotten into at least four games. And I think that that is kind of evidence that possibly the Patriots have been treating this season as kind of a de developmental year. And I think that it's also another piece of evidence when you look at kind of the offensive coaching and the Patriots going into this season trying something different. You know, and Bill Belichick bringing in Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. And, you know, kind of seeing what they could do with that. And, you know, clearly you could make an argument that, okay, it was doomed from the start. And that's fair. But I do think that those are two bits of evidence for me that makes it look like, okay, the Patriots are still kind of in that post-Brady rebuild. Um, and I think that it's been you know, kind of a three-year thing, you know, going all the way back to 2020 and the year with Cam Newton, you know, that team being seven and nine. And I'll just be honest, I think that when people think of the term rebuild, they think of a team that goes from doing really well to being really bad, you know, and a team winning three or four or five games for a prolonged period. Now, the Patriots, I believe, are, in general, a very well-coached team, just in general. I'm not saying that that's been the case this year, because I think at certain points it's not been the case, but I think generally they are a well-coached team, and the Patriots are never going to be a bad enough team that they're going to win so few games that I think being 7-9 and nine in 2020 or going 7-10 and 10 this year is the worst they're ever going to be. And I think that that's because they're so well coached and they have enough talent to be decent enough that they can be in the mix in terms of the playoffs. You know, I think that Mac Jones played a lot better than they expected him to last year. And the rookies that they picked last year made a really good impact last year. And I think that you look at some of the free agents they brought in, they also had good seasons. And so the Patriots were able to maintain that competitive edge because they were able to bring in free agents that were good last year and bring in, you know, some of these rookies that have been playing big, big parts in this team. You know, you look all the way back 
2020, the Patriots have drafted three impact players in each of the last three drafts. You look at 2020 with Kyle Duggar, Josh Uche, Mike Owenu, you know, all three of those guys are defensive starters. You look at 2021, you know, Mac Jones, Barmore, Ramondre Stevenson, those are three starters. You look at 2022, Cole Strange, Jack Jones, um, you know, Marcus Jones, those are three guys that have been starters at points this season, and you've gotten good contributions from, I think, Tyquan Thornton, Pierre Strong, Kevin Harris. They're not, um, they're not great contributions necessarily, but I think if you think back to like 2018, for example, if you drafted those those three positions, I don't know if those players would be getting the playing time that they're getting. And so I think that's even more evidence that the Patriots were approaching this year as a developmental year, that they're letting guys at skill positions playing, you know, specifically, I think, at running back and wide receiver. Clearly, they've had some injuries at certain spots, and so it's been necessary to play someone like Bailey Zappi or the two rookie running backs. But I think usually when the Patriots draft running backs, they don't really get time their first year. And so you've seen Pierre Strong getting some time recently, Kevin Harris getting some time recently. And so I think they're giving these guys opportunities to play, and there have been guys that have been really excellent. Marcus Jones and Jack Jones have been really, really good. I mean, I think Jack Jones, the defensive corner, has been one of the, if not the best corner, or one of the best corners from that 2022 draft, or best defensive backs, I should say. You know, I'm not going to say that, oh, he should have gone the first round, but the Patriots were willing to lose J.C. Jackson, and they brought in Jack Jones and Marcus Jones, and Marcus has been really good on special teams, but he's also been pretty solid defensively did a really good job on Devontae Adams on Sunday. So, you know, I think that people kind of need to remember that the Patriots, I think, are still in a kind of a post-Brady rebuild. And I think it's easy to think that that wasn't the case based on how well you did last season. But I think the Patriots did a lot better than they expected to, than they expected to be last year. And so I think it's kind of almost unfair to expect that they were going to be better than they were last season when last season kind of was just an outlier where it's like you drafted well, you brought in good free agents that were pretty good for you last year. This year, not so much the same same thing, but I think that they were able to be competitive enough that they could be a playoff team and win 10 games. Because like I said, the worst this team's ever going to be is a seven-win team if Belichick's here. And I think if you're going to be 7-10 and 10 this season, I mean, the, I don't know. To me, that's fine. I'd rather be 7-10 and 10 and be in the playoff mix than be, you know, 3-11 and 11 or 3-14 and 14 or whatever and just be a team that's bad, you know? And I just think that there is a distinct opportunity that the Patriots have to get better this offseason. They have $100 million in cap space. They've been drafting a lot better over the last couple of years, and so I think there's a real opportunity that they can get better, that this is the offseason that you're going to see major, or not major change, but kind of an emphasis of the Patriots to be like, okay, we are going to, we have rebuilt for three years, but now we are willing to 
you know, go all in and try to win, try to be competitive. And so I think that that starts with hiring an offensive coach or an offensive coordinator with experience on that side of the field that they can work with Matt Jones and be like, okay, what do you want to run? What are types of things you want to run? Have someone that has that experience with the offensive side of the ball. And then you think about personnel. You know, I think that they need a James White type of scat back. You know, whether or not they need a big physical wide receiver one, as people want to say, I think that's kind of up for debate, but I do think that they have decisions to make. You know, Jacoby Myers, Bourne, and Aguilar are all free agents. So, you know, I think that it's going to be interesting to see how the Patriots approach that. Um, So I just felt like the developmental year kind of was kind of a light bulb went off where it's like, oh, okay, that kind of makes a lot of sense for some of the things that you've seen this year now. I don't think the Patriots intended to have these big-time offensive issues. I think that that's something that they possibly, you know, underestimated that the offense was going to have more issues. But I just think in general, base level, this team can win seven games. Just with Bill Belichick, that it's like that's the bare minimum that they can do is win seven games, which in the NFL, you will take that every single season. Now, I know that the Patriots were unbelievable for a 20-year run. That's not going to be sustainable for longer. But if you can win at least seven games and maintain a rebuild while winning at least seven games, like you will take that. And I'm not sure that any Patriots fan would argue that you would rather have a seven, at least a seven-win team than a team that wins maybe a maximum of five games you want to at least be competitive. I don't know anyone that would want to not be competitive. But, you know, that's just me. And I think that, you know, that's just kind of the end of my uh, Patriots uh, rant, if you will. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next three weeks. So now we're going to get into the Bruins. I know we spent a lot of time talking about the Patriots, but there was a lot to get to. But we're going to get into the Bruins, obviously a really solid performance um, yesterday in terms of the goal scoring. Maybe it was not their best 60-minute performances. You know, it's kind of been the, the story recently that the Bruins are not necessarily playing their absolute best hockey. <laughs> You know, I think that they've had some games recently where they lost or just have not looked fully themselves for a full 60 minutes. Now, look, this is a team that has been playing out of their minds and playing the best hockey, been easily the best team in the league. And so you're going to go through stretches where you're not going to be at your best. But the Bruins are still getting points. And I think... That's kind of the important thing here, that you've not necessarily been playing your best, but you've still been able to get points. However, it might be a little concerning that they are, you know, not playing their best for a full 60 minutes, and I think... You know, that's one of the things that Jim Montgomery has mentioned recently, that they've had some games where they've not been 
you know, at their best for a full 60, you know, making a lot of mistakes, being sloppy with the puck, giving up the puck in the defensive zone. And, you know, it was pretty obvious last night after the Bruins had taken a 4 nothing lead, were up 5-3 to three in the third, and Florida just kept coming. Uh, Linus Olmark was huge in that early part of the third, where the Bruins had to kind of withhold a siege. But I think that, you know, you look at that game last night, you look at parts of the Columbus game, and then especially late in the Kings game, that the Bruins lost in the shootout. Lost in the shootout after blowing a two-goal third-period lead is they're being a little too sloppy with the puck, and it's leading to a lot of great chances for the for the other team and goals. And I think that you don't want to be able to you don't want to have that linger. You know, you want to be able to continue to play good, solid hockey. And look, you're not going to be able to play a perfect 60 minutes every single game. You're not going to be able to win every single game. The Bruins have been winning at a ridiculous rate that it is kind of hard to be critical of the team recently. But I think you want them to be able to, you know, play, not play in spurts. You know, be a little bit more consistent with how they're playing, which... You know, it's hard because I feel like I'm being nitpicky when the Bruins have won, you know, four of their last five games and they've gotten points in all five of those games. It's kind of hard to nitpick and be like, oh, they're not playing well. But, you know, I think it's something that you don't want to linger or you don't want to have show up at bad times. You know, and I think that that's kind of the latter of that, I think, is the most important that you don't want stretches like this to show up in the playoffs or in a stretch where you really need a win. So, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be, but just been so impressed with the Bruins goal scoring and the depth of scoring where it's coming from. I mean, last night you saw Brandon Carlo get his first goal of the season. Connor Clifton cut his third goal. Charlie Coyle scored his ninth. He's been unbelievable. He's playing third line. You know, the Bruins are just, Every guy offensively is playing really well, and it's just, it's almost unfair that recently you had Brad Marchand going through like a scoreless streak, and it's like, what a luxury to have that he's probably your second best player in terms of offensive production, and we're sitting here being like, oh, he's not scoring, but everyone else is putting in points, you know, Bergeron's been unbelievable, Taylor Hall has been playing, this is the best I think he's played in his career, you know, Bergeron's playing great. David Krejci is almost a point per game. He's turning back the clock over here. It's crazy. You know, Jake DeBrusque is having us another solid year. Pasternak is, you know, setting the pace for this team offensively and is among the best offensive players in the league. And you're getting Hampus Lindholm recently over the last couple of games has peppered in a couple more points. McAvoy has done the same. You know, Frederick and Coyle have been really excellent on that third line. You know, the Bruins have had Taylor Hall playing with them, and it's like he's your second leading scorer this season, and he's playing on your third line, and it's just unbelievable the luxury the Bruins have to be able to drop guys down in certain positions and be able to still continue, still continue to do really well. So there's really not a lot of complaints with how well this team has been playing. So, you know, it's just great to see someone like Carlo 
jump up into the rush last night, score a goal. I mean, that was just an excellent play um, to see him be able to utilize kind of some of his, I don't want to say offensive capabilities, but that's kind of what it was, you know, doing exactly what the coaching staff has been preaching to the defenseman to get into the play, get into the rush, and he scores a goal. And Connor Clifton doing what he does best, getting to the goal, but then following up his chance. And I know that there were people that got upset with Jim Montgomery's comment about, you know, he doesn't really like the term Cliffy Hockey, which, you know, was a reference to a nickname that Bruce Cassidy had given Connor Clifton just with the way that he plays. And, you know, Montgomery, I think, ruffled some feathers with saying that he didn't like the term and thought that it was like encouraging him to be reckless, which I don't know if that's necessarily the truth, but, you know, I could understand what he meant by that, where it's like it kind of was encouraging him to be, you know, physical and reckless, where it's like, okay, you've noticed this season where he's been a lot more focused and a lot more, just more of a complete player, you know, and it's just, it's kind of amazing that Clifton played really well under Cassidy, but he's playing even better under Jim Montgomery. And it's like, I didn't think that someone like Connor Clifton was going to be able to improve as a player, you know, not to say that I didn't think that he was going to be or like that he never was going to improve. I probably shouldn't have said it like that, but a guy that I thought that, okay, he was kind of just going to be an extra kind of seventh defenseman that a guy that you plug in every once in a while, but it's like, no, he's playing at an incredibly high level. You know, he's played almost every single game and has been really, really solid as a defensive player and can play with that physicality, but you know, can also jump up into the rush and give you, you know, scoring opportunities and scoring chances from him or with, you know, the, from him personally, or if, you know, he's involved in a play that a goal gets scored. So it's just, he's been excellent, you know, it's just, you look up and down the lineup and the Bruins have just been really solid, you know, and the Bruins have the luxury to be able to plug in A.J. Greer every once in a while now. Is he playing the best hockey this season right now? Probably not. You know, I think he was better toward the beginning of the season, but the fact that they can plug him into games and Craig Smith into games, and it's kind of important that I bring up Craig Smith. It's the Bruins had uh, placed him on waivers the other day. He passed through passed through waivers because clearly he was able to play last night. So it just was a way that the Bruins could possibly save a little bit more cap space um, with sending or with um, putting Craig on waivers. So I believe that his... I thought that there was something that they did with his salary, but I guess that they save a little bit of cap space um, for the for the trade deadline. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but um, they did put him on waivers, you know, which is tough because Craig's been a guy that I think has kind of been outplayed by a lot of, by a couple of guys in the bottom six this year and you know, just hasn't really gone hasn't really gone the way that he he would want it to, but 
you know, as Sean and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, he's a stand-up guy, and I think a guy that, you know, is really selfless and will kind of do whatever's necessary for the team, you know, is not going to be someone that's going to be openly pouting about his lack of ice time. Now, clearly, he probably, he himself is probably frustrated that he's not playing as much as he wants, but he'd never, you know, make that known. And I think that it just kind of goes to show you that I think he's a great guy that I think the guys like having in that room. And, you know, they'll rally rally around him, even if he's not playing too much or if his offensive production is down, which it is. Um, but I think just... From a personal standpoint, Craig is not a player that you have to worry about. You know, he's always going to do what's asked. He's always going to play hard, you know. And that's the great thing about his game where he could not play for 12 games in a row, but will come in and be just as tenacious on the puck and be just as aggressive. Um, And I think that that's one of the reasons why the Bruins signed him two years ago is just he's a hound and he's tenacious on pucks. And I think that you could feel confident that he could step into a bottom six role whenever necessary. If it's, you know, to give someone a night off or if someone gets hurt, you know, you can plug him in there. So, you know, it's tough for a player like Craig, but I think that he's got a good head on his shoulders. So, you know, it will be interesting to see what happens with him, you know, monitoring him closer to the trade deadline. You know, Mike Riley as well. You know, I think both of those guys are still candidates to be traded. Um, But clearly, I think that according to some different sources, like with Riley and Smith at various points this season, the Bruins have tried to find trade partners for both of those players and haven't really had the, haven't really been, haven't really found anyone you know, clearly. And I think a lot of teams being pressed up against the salary cap has a lot to do with that. So, you know, it'll be a situation to monitor toward the closer to the trade deadline. But, you know, it's just, this is a Bruins team that, again, it's hard to find a lot of, um, find a lot of areas to be like disappointed, you know, or not pleased with the way that they're playing. So, Clearly, a good win against the Panthers. Last night with the seven goals, <clears throat> Bruins kind of played played the lead in this game. They were up 4-0 in the second period. Florida got back to 4-3, but then the Bruins scored three unanswered to take the game away. It was a game that, hit, you know, probably should have been closer if... Spencer Knight for the Panthers had made a couple more saves. The Bruins definitely were the beneficiary of a couple of uh, bad goals that were given up. But, you know, you'll take it. Uh, The Bruins will play Winnipeg at the Garden on Thursday night. And then they will travel to New Jersey on Friday. And then we have the uh, NHL's Christmas freeze, as it's known, where there are no games. There's no roster moves or anything like that. So... The league takes off those three days, Christmas Eve, Christmas, and then the 26th. Um, Then the Bruins will be back against Ottawa and New Jersey on the road next Tuesday and next Wednesday. So it'll be interesting to see the Devils 
come into, or the Bruins go to New Jersey, play the Devils for the first time this season, a team that's been really hot out of the gate like the Bruins, although the Devils have lost some games recently, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But the Bruins against Winnipeg on Thursday night should be a good game as well. Winnipeg's been playing really well this season under new head coach Rick Bonus, so should be a good game at the Garden on Thursday night. Bruins sitting at 25-4-2. Keep that, uh, you know, undefeated in, in regulation home record. Bruins are 17-0-2 at the Garden, so that will certainly be interesting to look at. Or just look at that record and just admire it for however much longer it's going to be there. But be interesting to see how the Bruins play against a couple of good opponents over the next couple of days. So I think we're going to move on. We're going to talk uh, a little bit about the Red Sox. You know, for better or for worse, this is the uh, Boston baseball team. Despite how uh, irritated you might be with the uh, front office and just the whole thing, which is totally understandable because it's just like they don't care. It's just like, in my opinion, I don't think that the ownership cares. Like, I honestly don't think they care. And I think that, you know, someone said said this recently that maybe they're looking to sell the team because certainly they do not care about the baseball product on the field. You know, if they're going to lose Bogarts and, you know, clearly they're going to lose Devers if any of this recent reporting is true that they're quote-unquote galaxies apart in terms of, you know, negotiating. And, you know, I understand Bloom's quote about, you know, going beyond reason and that there are limitations because there absolutely are. You know, you look at a reasonable contract for Raphael, Raphael Devers. I don't know what that is exactly, but let me tell you, it's not what Carlos Correa got. You know, if we're looking to pay him 13 years for... 350 million. I mean, that's insane. No one's paying that for Devers, even as good as he is. Um, so I just hope that his camp is not thinking that the Red Sox are going to sign that contract because that's absurd. Um, but anyway, the Red Sox should do everything they can to keep Rafael Devers, who's, you know, kind of their last homegrown guy, I guess. Um, but it's just irritating that the front office just seemingly doesn't really care as much as they say they do, or, you know, we never hear from some of the owners, or when they do, it's just they're talking out of their, talking out of their butt, so, no, it's just, it's just annoying, it's just a really annoying time to be a Red Sox fan, because while the Red Sox have actually made some decent free agent signings, they've just, you know, kind of let it all go to waste by, you know, screwing up at Bogarts, where it's like you look at some of the guys that they've brought in. If Bogarts was still here, they would be, a, they could still be a pretty good baseball team. Now, they might still be a pretty good team, but just the idea that you, you know, you bungled it with him when you could have had him on this roster with an improved bullpen, 
and with you know a couple guys that you've signed that are good at putting the good at putting the ball in play you know you think about Yoshida you think about Justin Turner who they just signed you know I think that those are good solid signings and if you had Bogarts things would be great you know and it's like you got to believe that this Bogarts thing absolutely affects Raphael Devers and his feelings about the about the team going forward that if he sees the way that Bogarts was treated he's you know going to think that why why am I going to be any different so you know it's just disappointing that it could have been so much easier if they just had been you know appropriate and you know knew what they were doing with you know negotiating with their own guys which I guess they feel that all players that have been here should just be taking hometown discounts and should be happy with it which is just stupid but it's like that's absolutely what what has been happening over the last you know however long these owners have been here so you know it just very concerning about Devers, you know, the reports that have come out, but, you know, it's just disappointing because I don't think that this offseason has really been that bad, you know, in terms of the players that have been brought in specifically, you know, I think that the moves that they've brought in to upgrade the bullpen have been really good. I think that the move to bring in Yoshida was a solid move. Now, you know, you can argue all day if it was a bad contract or whatever, but I think that he's a solid player, you know. He's played in Japan, has been pretty good, and, you know, we'll see. But Justin Turner, you kind of know what you're going to get from a guy like that. So I like this signing because I think that he can give you some pop. You know, he's a guy that hit 27 home runs two years ago. So he's a guy that can still hit and is a great leader. You know, and I think that Red Sox are losing Bogarts, need kind of a leadership um, aspect to this team going forward. So I think that's a great move there. And, you know, Turner is a guy that can be a DH, but can also play first, you know, can kind of give you some versatility there. So it's just a good solid signing, which is just makes it so much more frustrating that, you know, Bogarts was on this team. You could feel good about this team and you could feel good about them contending, which I still think that they can, you know, I think that if Turner is, you know, between 27 and, you know, 18 home runs and drives in 70 runs and, you know, Story is back to being a really good offensive player. You know, Yoshida hits for a high average, helps you in that leadoff spot. You know, there I think that they could be a solid team, but it just, again, it would have been so much easier if Bogarts was on this team. And it just goes to show you that I just don't think that the front office really cares about this team. They care more about their investments in the Pittsburgh Penguins and Liverpool and all the other non-baseball things. And it's just, I don't know. I think it's the, it's the winning and the popularity of this franchise that has gone to their heads. And now that matters more to them. Because as I said, they've won already. They've won four times. Why, why, why do we need to win five times? You know, who cares? Just run this team like a business. We've won already. Fans are going to come to the games, all the pink hats. You know, no one really cares. <laughs> it's just, I just think that that's what, that's what their thinking is. 
And it's just disappointing that they've stopped caring about the baseball team. They've stopped caring about the baseball fans. And I think that that's what's going on here. And look, you can pin this on Bloom. I think that's really naive. But it's just like they brought Bloom in to do exactly what they want him to do, which is to, you know, tighten the purse strings on this team, run this team the way that he ran the Tampa Bay race, and, you know, not spend a lot of money. Now, you know, if it's, I think to me, it's kind of up for debate whether you can win and be successful that way, because I think you can, but it's just like, that's not the way to run this team. You know, I think that there is some kind of medium between, you know, Heim Bloom and Dave Dombrowski, and I think the Red Sox should find someone like that, not someone that's going to go all in to win one championship and destroy your farm system, but you also don't want, you know, someone that's just not going to dole out big contracts, you know, but it's just like, I don't think anything's going to change until the ownership changes. Because Bloom is just doing exactly what the ownership tells him to. The ownership is like, we're not going to give Xander this deal, so don't sign him to that. So it's just like, I just feel like there's not a lot. You can't really expect a lot, honestly. So, you know, it's just it's just disappointing that that's where it goes. But, you know, it it is what it is, I guess. So, you know, we'll see what the Red Sox can do. I mean, I think still have some needs offensively. You know, I think I still would like for them to get another bat, another player that you can rely on to hit hit some home runs. You know, Alex Verdugo, I'm not super high on him as a player. Um, I think that they could do better, but, you know, I don't know who they could sign. Could they target someone in a trade? You know, clearly they're moving forward with Story as their shortstop as they haven't signed you know, Bogarts is direct replacement, so you got to think that Story moves over to short, or they bring Kike in there to play short or second base, you know, who knows, um, but I think just personally, I would like them to add another bat, you know, hopefully someone like Cassas can kind of come in and give you that other bat, but he's kind of a little bit of an unknown at this point, um, just from like a base, a major baseball standpoint that He's not played a lot in the majors, so we still kind of don't know what he is as a player. So, you know, we'll see. But I think starting pitching rotation, the Red Sox need to look at, you know, Michael Walker, Nathan Avaldi, free agents. You know, do the Red Sox think about bringing back either one of those guys? You know, I think it's a possibility. Do they look at someone like Corey Kluber to bring in? You know, that's also possible. So... You know, I think they'll be looking at kind of some of those back end of the rotation starters. Um, but I'm pretty, I've been pretty happy with what they've done with the bullpen. You know, that's kind of been, seems to be like a real emphasis with the signings of Chris Martin and Kenley Jansen. So, you know, we'll see what they do offensively. But it's just the whole thing with, with Bogarts and now Devers is just disappointing. And it's just, it's hard to get super excited about this team when, they have, you know, failed to fail to sign their number one priority and are probably going to lose out on Devers unless something crazy happens. So, you know, 
just going to be what it's going to be. And I think, you know, we got to move on to something else that's been kind of bothering me over the last couple of days. Um, and that's the Celtics. Um, two just really, really disappointing losses um, over the last couple of games. You know, two-game stretch against the Orlando Magic, which you were thinking, okay, this team's coming back from the West Coast trip. And, you know, I was going to... You know, or, or they're going to come home from the West Coast trip after playing some games that were not exactly perfect um, and be able to kind of get back on track against a team that, you know, isn't very good. And clearly, you know, the end of the road trip did not really give you a lot of confidence. Um, you know, that blowout loss to the Clippers last week, the OT win against the Lakers, which was a great game, a great win, but the Celtics... You know, it was one of those weird games. The Celtics had a big lead, gave it away, had to make a crazy comeback in the last couple of minutes, win it in overtime, which, you know, showed some balls, I think, with the way that this team had kind of been struggling over the last two games previously. But it was a good win. You know, Tatum and Brown were excellent and gave you kind of a, a lift to finish that road trip that, you know, four and two, okay, that's pretty good, that's successful. You come in with two games against an Orlando team that, granted, had been playing decent basketball, but teams that you should beat. And the Celtics came out with just two really poor offensive performances, which is not something that you've seen from this team this year. And I think this is really the first time that you're seeing this team struggle and struggle through adversity, which, you know, is not the teams, not the team that I expected that they were going to have to suffer through adversity, but it's here. And I think that, unfortunately, the movement in the offense has stopped. You know, I think that, unfortunately, shots are not dropping at the rate that they were at the beginning of the season, and guys are getting discouraged by it. And I think that it's irritating because you cannot possibly expect that you're going to continue to shoot the lights out for the entire season. It doesn't work that way. Um, and it just is frustrating to me that they continued to jack up threes on Sunday afternoon when it wasn't working. And I just think that you can't just give up if shots aren't falling. You have to find a different way, you know, get to the free throw line, attack the basket, you know, you know, take it into the paint, you know, do things like that, get easier shots. You know, it's just frustrating that they kind of fell into the trap that, kind of plagued them a lot last season in the early part where one part of their game offensively is not working, but then they keep trying to do it. And it's just, you have to adjust. You know, this is the NBA where if one thing doesn't work, you have to adjust and go to the next thing, you know? And I know that there are guys that have shots that usually fall, but you're not going to be able to be a historic offense the entire season because it's just like, there are teams, obviously, that have done it in the history of the NBA, but it's just this day and age, it's hard to maintain that. And I just think that they need to find better ways to, you know, score efficiently when their shots aren't falling. Now, I know that that sounds counterintuitive, but it's like, if you're having trouble making threes and you're having trouble, you know, shooting jump shots and shots aren't falling... 
you know, you need to be able to play more aggressively. You need to play with pace, play with aggressiveness where you can catch a team out in transition because that's what you saw for part of parts of those last two games. The Celtics couldn't make shots, but when they played quickly and played with pace, they were successful. They got to the basket, got to the free throw line, got easy layups and dunks. And it's just, I understand that you can't run up and down the floor the entire game, but it's just his. When you find a way to be able to be successful in a game, you have to continue to do that. You can't just go to something that has worked up until that point, but isn't working in a particular game. You know, if it's the three-point shot that's not working, well, don't keep doing it. Do the thing that has made you successful. Do the thing that makes you successful in a game. You know, and it's just, it's just frustrating, you know, and I don't want to discount the Orlando Magic, who I think are playing excellent basketball right now. You know, they have a really good young core, and I think that bringing in Bancaro and bringing in all these young guys, you know, they're a team that I think could be very good in two years. You know, they're coming in and knowing that they're playing against the best team in the league, and they want to come in and they want to show the rest of the NBA. You know, but it's like you have to match that. You know, it's the same way that I was disappointed with the loss to the Warriors, where you should have been coming in a little bit more aggressive. The Celtics needed to be coming in a little bit more aggressive on Sunday. You know, Friday. Friday, I'll give you. You know, it's the end of a tough road trip, and that's understandable. But it's just to not come back and be more aggressive on Sunday just disappointed me, you know, and even without Jason Tatum, you still should be able to beat the Orlando Magic. So, you know, it's just frustrating that it just doesn't seem that the effort and the focus is there where it needs to be. Celtics have lost four of their last five, and it's kind of shown with the way that they haven't played well offensively. You know, scored 122 in the overtime game, but They've had scores of, you know, 93, 92, 107, 109, when they were consistently scoring over 115. You know, you look at some of these games recently, 125, 122, 130, 140, 134, 116, 125, you know. It's just, and I understand that it's discouraging, you know, for someone like Sam Hauser who, is not shooting the ball well right now, but shooting unbelievable to start the season, you know, and it's just, that's just the way it goes sometimes. And I think it's just, it's tough, it's frustrating, but it's like their shots will start to fall at some point. But I think that you want to be able to find different ways to be successful offensively so you don't have to rely on a three-point shot and feel like you're screwed if the shots aren't falling. So, you know, that's kind of just the disappointment of the offense. And I think that the offense will find their rhythm again. They will. You know, it's a long season. You go through you go through ebbs and flows. And so I think you just hope the Celtics can kind of pick that back up and hopefully with a couple of days off before pace before the before facing the Pacers at the garden tomorrow night, the Celtics can try to you know, work some things out, try to get things right in practice and be able to move the ball quicker and more efficiently because they're playing some teams coming in that have a lot of talent offensively and they have to be at their best. You know, the Pacers have been a good, solid offensive team this year. 
They're coming in with a lot of confidence. You have the Milwaukee Bucks, obviously, on Christmas Day. So those are two of your next three games. So, you know, you hope the Celtics can figure it out with, you know, five in a row at home still. It's a season-long seven-game homestand. So, you know, you hope that they can kind of correct things. Uh, it has been great to see Robert Williams back. You know, I think that he is still kind of working to get back into the into the swing of things, not totally 100% himself. Um, but I think one of the ways that you can hope to try to get your rhythm back offensively is getting him more involved. You know, the lobs and the plays under the basket that you can get the ball to him and he can dunk it, you know. Giving your offense confidence that, you know, seeing the ball go through the basket, getting confidence, getting excitement from the crowd, lobbing it up to Rob Williams and doing simple things like that, I think is what can kind of help get their offense back on track where you get some easy baskets, you get some plays driving to the basket, you get to the free throw line, you know, because that's what's going to make you more dangerous. So it's just great to see Rob back, just great to see him, you know, throwing down that first lob and getting into the action defensively. So it's just been fun to watch, but, you know, hopefully him being back just kind of ignites this team as they kind of really go through some some adversity for the first time this season. Very curious to see how they play against the Indiana Pacers, um, who have kind of been here and there, but they do have a lot of offensive talent. So you hope that the Celtics can bring it tomorrow night um, and then obviously bring it on Christmas Day, which will be a really fun game. Um, they also will play the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden on Friday night. So the Minnesota team that has won the three in a row. So, you know, clearly with Anthony Edwards, Carl Anthony Towns, they do have a lot of offensive talent. So you hope that defensively the Patriots or the Celtics can be up to the task. Um, it just, you know, it just seems like the frustration on offense is seeping through to every other part of their game. You know, that the Celtics couldn't even make a simple inbounds pass in a huge, you know, late game situation. So you hope that that improves, you know, I think that they can improve and I think they will improve, you know, the team is 22 and nine. They've had an excellent start, but you know, you're going to hit some bumps and the Celtics are, are, you know, in, are in a big bump right now, losing four of their last five. But with all these games at home, we hope the Celtics can, get back to an offensive rhythm before they will go out on the road for four games in the new year. So I think that's going to be it for the Celtics. We're going to get to the NFL, take a look at the scores from week 15. Monday Night Football was last night, so we'll get into the scores and then take a look at the playoff standings with three weeks to go. So Thursday night on uh, Thursday night last week, the 49ers and Brock Purdy with another win. They win the NFC West with the 21-13 win over the Seahawks. So very good 49ers team and Brock Purdy, you know, the final pick in the NFL draft in 2022 now leading the team. You know, clearly 
not a guy that's going to set the world on fire, but I think that this is a 49ers team that is so well built that at the quarterback position, it almost doesn't matter who's, you know, manning the controls at the quarterback position with all the, uh, all the weapons that they have. Although it'll be interesting to see if Debo Samuel does return at some point, but you got McCaffrey, you got George Kittle, you got a good defense and, you know, could be the recipe for a team that might make a run in the NFC. We are at the point in the year where there are games on Saturday, so there were three games on Saturday. If the Bills beating the Dolphins in a uh, shootout, 32-29, game-winning field goal from Tyler Bass as time expired. <clears throat> the Bills clinching their fourth straight playoff berth have not clinched the division, but did clinch a playoff berth with the win. And then the Browns beat the Ravens 13-3. The Ravens still without Lamar Jackson, so the Browns' defense came up big. Deshaun Watson got his first win as quarterback of the Browns. Um, and then, obviously, the early game, the largest comeback in NFL history as the Colts were ahead 33-0 at halftime. 36-7 in the third quarter. The Vikings come all the way back. Kirk Cousins, 460 yards and four touchdowns. The game-winning field goal from Craig, from uh, Greg Joseph. And the Vikings, you know, just been a wild, wild team this year with a lot of big wins against maybe some opponents that aren't, aren't too good, but they still keep finding ways to win. So the Vikings, 11-3, 7-1 at home. And then looking at the game Sunday, the Eagles outlasted the Bears 25-20. to Jalen Hurts was hurt in this game, so he might miss a couple of weeks with a sprained shoulder. But Eagles get the win, improved to 13-1. The Saints beat the Falcons 21-18. to Andy Dalton with a couple of touchdown passes. Both teams 5-9, but are still in contention for that first place in the NFC South as the... Uh, Buccaneers, as we'll talk about in a moment, continue to lose games. The Lions outlasting the Jets 20-17. And the Lions have won six of their last seven, so they are, you know, charging hard for the final, or one of the final NFC playoff spots. Uh, the Jets fall to 7-7 fall seven seven with the loss, despite Zach Wilson with 317 yards and two touchdowns. Uh, Steelers beat the Panthers 26. Steelers beat the Panthers 24 to 16. Steelers improved to six and eight. Panthers five and nine. Um, Panthers still, you know, in the mix for that NFC South, which is kind of wild. Um, but the Steelers win another game, so they kind of get a little bit closer. Mitch Trubisky was. A quarterback for this one, Steelers win. The Jags upsetting the Cowboys in overtime on a pick six. 40-34, to 34 and the Jags are all of a sudden in the mix in the AFC. Trevor Lawrence, four touchdown passes. Cowboys lose in overtime. Um, fall to 10-4. Chiefs uh, beat the Texans in overtime. 30-24, to 24. Texans still 
one, still a one-win team, but the Chiefs get the win. 11 and 3, the Chiefs are with the win. They're still tied with the with the Bills for that top record in the AFC. The Cardinals beating, or the Broncos beating the Cardinals 24 to 15, both teams at 4 and 10 now. And the Chargers using a uh, winning drive in the fourth quarter to beat the Titans 17 to 14. The Chargers are now now have that final AFC playoff spot. The Titans with the loss at 7 and 7 now made things very interesting in their division. We'll take a look at that in a moment. The uh, Bengals beating the Bucks, as I previously mentioned. So, yeah, things are getting interesting in the NFC South as well. And then the Giants beating the Commanders on Sunday Night Football 20-12. to Giants improved to 8-5-1. and And then last night, the Packers with the win over the Rams. Packers are 6-8. and eight And, yeah, as we'll take a look at the standings right now, Things are getting very, very interesting. So in the AFC, Buffalo still in the driver's seat for that number one seed. Chiefs are the second. And then the Bengals and the Titans, the other division winners. And then the play the wild card, wild card teams, the Ravens, the Chargers, and the Dolphins with the Patriots and the Jets just a game back. And then Jacksonville, Jacksonville Vegas, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh all two games back of the playoffs. So things are kind of interesting here. Uh, clearly, the Patriots will need help at this point if they're going to have hope to get to the playoffs. But, you know, playing the Bengals this week does not exactly pode well for them. In the NFC, the Eagles still maintain that top seed. And I believe if they win this week, they will clinch the top seed in the NFC. So they're in first, 13-1. and one. Vikings are second at 11-3, and three, and then the 49ers. 10 and 4, and then Tampa Bay still in a playoff spot at 6 and 8, um, and then Dallas 10 and 4, Giants 8, 5 and 1, and Washington 7, 6 and 1, with Seattle and Detroit right behind them for that last playoff spot. Green Bay is also in, also in play, but then you have three NFC South teams at 5 and 9, one game behind Tampa Bay, so really anything can happen there in that division, which is just absurd. And I just it reminds me that I think that, yes, it is important that the NFL rewards a team to go to the playoffs for winning your division, but it's just like there's no possible way that that's fair by letting a team that is two games under 500 be in a position to host a playoff game. That's just not right. You know, it's it'd be different if you're 500, but it's like, you, the NFL should not be rewarding a, a division winner this much. Like, I think that, yes, winning your division is important. And I think that winning your division should guarantee you a playoff spot. But it shouldn't guarantee you a number four seed. I think that's just a little bit absurd. That it's just like, no, like they don't really deserve home field. It's like, look at this. Tampa Bay is in fourth place at six and eight. Dallas is in fifth place at ten and four. You're really telling me a six-win team deserves to have home field over a 10-win team? Like, that's crazy. You know, so I hope that it, 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 I hope that it, like, fixes itself, but it probably won't. You know, but it's just, like, the, the playoff system absolutely needs to be changed. That a team with a sub-500 record should not have home field over a team that is well over 500. It just shouldn't work that way, so... 
you know, whatever, probably just start yelling at a brick wall at this point because, you know, the league probably won't change that, but it is what it is, as they say. So um, we'll move on, talk a little bit about MLB free agency, just kind of give you an update on um, any free agents that have signed recently. Noah Syndergaard getting a return or getting a deal with the Dodgers, so he'll be back. But obviously, uh, Carlos Correa taking a big deal to join the Giants, and then Dansby Swanson signing a deal to join the Cubs. Just taking a look at some other baseball news. Chris Bassett from the Mets jumping across the border to join the Blue Jays. Seth Lugo signing a deal with the Padres. Previously a pitcher for the Mets. Michael Brantley is returning for uh, one year for the Astros, one year for $12 million. J.D. Martinez joining the Cubs on a one, or uh, excuse me, joining the Dodgers on a one-year deal worth about $10 million. Um, Andrew Benintendi getting a five-year deal from the White Sox. Joey Gallo uh, joining the Twins. One year for $11 million. That um, Benintendi contract is five years for $75 million. Um, then the Yankees signing Carlos Rodon for a six-year $162 million deal. So still some signings coming in, obviously, toward the end of the month. We'll have Eric Bellier in here to talk about MLB free agency. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, so I think we're going to move on and talk a little bit. Uh, kind of go through some notes and standings from the NBA. Damian Lillard passing Clyde Drexler as the Blazers' leading scorer, um, and then or leading scorer of all time, or scoring leader, I should say. Um, Nikola Jokic, just ridiculous numbers, matching um, a stat line from. Will Chamberlain, 40 points, 27 rebounds, and 10 assists. Uh, just a ridiculous player to watch night in and night out. Um, so taking a look at some games tonight, you have Utah and Detroit at 7 o'clock, Chicago and Miami at 7.30, and a doubleheader on TNT, Golden State and New York at 7.30, and then Memphis and Denver at 10. Washington and Phoenix also will play tonight at 9. So taking a look at the standings, Celtics have been overpassed, or have been passed by the Bucks for first place in the East. Bucks are percentage points ahead of the, ahead of the Celtics for first place. So the Bucks in first, Celtics second, and then followed by the Cavaliers, the Brooklyn Nets, the Sixers, and the Knicks. All three of those teams, um, Atlantic Division rivals for the Celtics, and all three of those teams are on winning streaks. Sixers have won five in a row, Nets have won six in a row, and the Knicks have won seven in a row. So the Nets, Sixers, and Knicks, the four, five, and six seeds in the East in the play-in positions at the moment. You have the Heat, the Hawks, the Pacers, who will play the Celtics on Wednesday night, and then the Raptors. In the Western Conference, Memphis leads the West by a game over Denver and Phoenix, and then they are followed by New Orleans, the Clippers, and the Sacramento Kings. And then the play-in positions, you have Portland, Minnesota, who's coming to the Garden on Friday. Um, 
Utah, and then Dallas. So surprisingly, the Golden State Warriors on the outside looking in in terms of the play-in, which is kind of wild, but don't expect that to continue. So going over, or switching sports, going over to the uh, NHL. Cam Atkinson will need neck surgery for the Flyers, so he is out for the season. Uh, the Maple Leafs acquiring Dryden Hunt in a trade with the Avalanche. Uh, Stuart Skinner, goaltender for the uh, Edmonton Oilers, signed a three-year extension. And Tomas, Hur Tomas Hurdle was suspended two games for a high stick. He plays for the Sharks, so he will miss the next two games. Um, Alex Ovechkin still looking to tie Gordy Howe for the second most goals in NHL history. Still looking to still looking to tie the record and then hopefully breaking it. He is 63 goals away from Wayne Gretzky's all-time goal scoring goal scoring records. So that will definitely be something to watch for for the next you know season or two. I don't expect him to score 63 goals the rest of the season, but realistically, you could you could see him breaking that record at some point next season. So, taking a look at some games tonight, four games at 7 o'clock. The Devils and the Hurricanes, the Blue Jackets and the Flyers, the Penguins and the Rangers, and the Lightning and the Maple Leafs. Three of those games would be really, really fun to watch. Um, then at 8 o'clock, Ottawa and Winnipeg. And then a couple of games late at 10 o'clock, St. Louis and Seattle. And then at 10.30, Anaheim and Los Angeles and Calgary and San Jose. So we'll take a look at the standings. The Bruins, uh, you know, continue to pile up points and now have a pretty healthy advantage for the most points in the league. They're seven points ahead of the Vegas Golden Knights for first place in the league. Bruins have an eight-point advantage over the Toronto Maple Leafs. They are in second place in the Atlantic, and then Tampa Bay is in third. In the Metropolitan, the Devils and the Hurricanes are tied atop the division with 44 points, and then the Rangers have 41. They've been playing some good hockey. Recently, they've won seven in a row. In the wildcard positions, you have Pittsburgh and the Islanders, with Washington even with points with the Islanders. So things have been pretty interesting in the Eastern Conference recently as Washington and Buffalo have been playing really good hockey. <clears throat> in terms of teams that are on the outside looking in for the playoffs in the Western Conference, obviously Vegas in first place in the Pacific, followed by the Kings and the Seattle Kraken. And then in the Central, it's Dallas, Winnipeg, and Minnesota, the top three in that division with Colorado and Edmonton, the wildcard teams with Calgary two points back of that final playoff spot. So I think, yeah, we'll maybe talk a little bit about the World Cup. I don't, don't want to do too much. Um, so we'll get more into that with John Veneziano later this week, um, but just a Tremendous tournament coming to a great end with the uh, final on Sunday. One of the wildest soccer games I've ever witnessed, you know. Two all-time greats going at it, you know. Messi and Argentina getting the win in the penalty shootout after playing to a 3-3 draw after 120 minutes. 
it just was uh, it, it just was great to be able to watch a game like that have a great game for the fi- for the final you know four years ago the game was not quite as close you know I think it was four to two was the final score but you know just an outstanding game and a really fun World Cup to watch you know I think we were all hoping the U.S. would have done a little bit better but you know four years in four years it's going to be really exciting to you know, see how far some of these guys, some of these players have come, but just a tremendous tournament with a tremendous final. Um, So congratulations to Argentina. We'll talk more about the World Cup later this week. Really looking forward to that. So that's probably going to do it for me this week. We'll probably be doing Tuesday episodes for the next uh, two weeks, just to let you guys know as, you know, the holidays are coming up and happy holidays uh, to everyone celebrating any type of holiday, you know, it's always a really fun time of year for a lot of people. So uh, make sure you spend some time with your family and, you know, do all sort of all, all your typical, you know, holiday traditions and things like that. So uh, we'll be back with you folks next week. Um, and for those of you who celebrate Merry Christmas, we'll be back with you guys next week. And for those celebrating right now, Happy Hanukkah and Happy Holidays to everyone celebrating the ho- celebrating the holidays. So. Uh, We'll be back with you later this week, and we'll talk to you Friday.